All right, welcome back to the Biblos Network. We are so glad that you've come to join us. We're glad that you are enjoying the favor and the blessing of God. It is a New Testament day, and God's people are ever growing, ever becoming enlightened to the purpose of God. The revelation of his will in your life is of paramount importance in this day. That's another way of saying it's time to have revival. It's time to have great growth. The, the world is wide open to those who are ready to seize it and grab a hold and believe God and his promises just as they are given in the word. The prophets talked about it. The apostles reiterated it. And we are walking into the kingdom with boldness and confidence. So I trust you are enjoying the blessings of God. Um, we're glad that you've taken this time. I know you're busy. I know you have things to do, but I hope you have a Biblos mug. I hope that you are perhaps on a treadmill or an elliptical. If you're apostolic, it's a good idea to take care of yourself, take care of your body, get in shape, love Jesus, love God, and fall in love with the things of God. Um, today, wow, there's so much to talk about. Um, last week's session with Brother Stephen Gill was a smashing success. You guys let me know in no uncertain terms that you really enjoyed that. I loved it. It was a great um, a great time to sit down and just explore topics that people really have questions about. And a lot of times people will get into the scripture and, and they will joust with the scriptures with people who are adverse in their theology, people from a denominational background as opposed to an apostolic background. But um, to go into the history and the, the, the cited secular historical sources of who Constantine was, what those councils were all about. It's, it's amazing. You'll find out that Trinitarian theologians really uh, love the councils, which is interesting because they are Catholic councils. They later reject Catholicism and most of the tenets of Catholicism, but then they will hang on to this doctrine of the Trinity. Secular historians do not. They do not treat Constantine and those councils with any reverence or kid gloves. They don't have any, any dog in the fight as it were dog in the race would probably be a better analogy. Um, they, they don't have a vested interest. They're simply retorting, reporting the data from an archeological perspective. You can trust those sources much more than you can a biased denominal source. Um, so it was a great session. I enjoyed it very much. I trust that you did. Um, I wanted to dive into questions. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I told you to send in your questions and to ask things that are on your mind. And boy, you guys did it. We got deluged with questions. It was a tsunami of apostolic questions. And they're great questions. I am, I am so excited to be connected to the people of God. I love the people of God. And you have wonderful questions. You have wonderful perspectives. And I, I decided to dedicate this episode to that. So one of the first questions that we have here today comes from Talon. Talon says, greetings, Brother Urshan. I think the answer to this question would be great for someone struggling with oneness. Were the Jews of Jesus' time expecting their God to be manifested in the flesh? They had a home. 
They had a promise of a Messiah that would come. Did they understand that Messiah to be the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Very good question. So were they expecting God to be manifested in the flesh? Well, that's a, it's, I think some of them did, some of them didn't. There were a lot of expectations that the Jews had that when Jesus came were far different than what Jesus actually did. For instance, they, some, many, many people expected the kingdom to be a physical kingdom on the spot that the Romans would be overthrown. Um, one group that believed that fervently were the zealots. The zealots believed that Messiah would rise, that he would lead them. And if you go back in history and um, to Judah Maccabee, the Maccabean revolt, they actually believed that they were going to overthrow Rome and God was going to help them. This was just a couple hundred years before um, Jesus was born. So, during the Maccabean revolt, they actually did overthrow Rome for a period of time. And a lot of them thought the kingdom of God has come. Uh, they called him Judah, the hammer. And if you ever read a Catholic Bible, you'll see the, the book of the Maccabees. Well, this has to do with those people. It was a very famous period of time in history in Judaism, the history of Judaism. But Eventually, Rome marshaled its forces and came at them with their might, and they crushed them. Devastating military um, conflict that, that just decimated the people of that day. They just destroyed so much, and Roman the Romans re-exerted their rule over them. And it was not the Messiah, obviously, and the kingdom was not coming. So that's why the disciples would keep asking Jesus, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom? And this is why Peter pulls a sword out and cuts off Malchus' ear. And Jesus, Jesus makes the statement, don't you think I could call upon the legions of angels to come and, and my, my servants would fight for it if my kingdom were of this world? A recurring theme was that they were going to overthrow Caesar and the Messiah was going to come. So they anticipated that, they believed that. That did not happen. And so there were a lot of things that the Jews expected during that time that did not happen. Another one was Elijah. They expected Elijah to come and they get that from the book of Malachi, where it said that when the Messiah would come, that God would send forth the messenger before him and he would straighten out the crooked. Every mountain would be brought down. Every valley would, valley would be brought up. The crooked would be made straight. He would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And that servant would be Elias or Elijah. And so Later on, the disciples are talking to Jesus. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. They know him as the Messiah. They say, okay, we got it. You're the Messiah. But wait, when the Bible says Elias must first come, when, when's that going to happen? Did we miss something? And they did. They missed something. Um, Jesus said Elias already came, and they did with him whatever they would. Then understood they that he spake of John the Baptist. So it was not that Elijah would physically come up out of the grave, be resurrected and walk the streets. It was that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the might of Elias. And that's how he would come. So a lot of them were expecting physical fulfillment of things, but Jesus kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom that would span the globe, not just Israel. So they expected a lot of things. 
But he told them that he would come. Uh, one of the great proofs in the Bible is when Abraham is taking his son Isaac up the mountain and Isaac asks his father, you know, here is the fire, here is the wood, where is the sacrifice for, for our journey? And Abraham's response was, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. He will provide himself. God himself will come and will provide the sacrifice. Um, the name Emmanuel means God with us. You will call his name Emmanuel. A virgin will conceive, will bring forth a son. His name will be called Emmanuel, and he will be God with us. Not only that, um, when you read about Isaiah 9 and 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And, and, and by the way, it's not on Peter's shoulder. It's not on the Pope's shoulder. The church isn't built upon a man. The church is built upon Jesus Christ. And that is borne out by the later scriptures that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. So we are built on the foundation of Jesus. And, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. So he would be the Mighty God. He would be the Everlasting Father. He would be the Prince of Peace. So that Everlasting Father is a nod to his divinity. The Prince of Peace is a nod to his humanity. That, that prince means that he is still in formation. He has not yet ascended to the authority of the kingship. Um, you know, the psalmist said that he, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's the everlasting father and the prince of peace, the spirit and the flesh working in coordination. Well, when, when the, Jews asked about Christ. Jesus said, I have a question for you. If, if David says this, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, said to my Lord, my son, um, the Messiah that would rise from my lineage, if Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit thou at my right hand till I make that enemy thy footstool, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So David is calling Messiah his Lord, but yet it is his son. How can that be? And the Jews could not answer that question. So uh, it's, it's obvious that they did not understand it. I don't know if they expected it, but the word of God was true and is true that Emmanuel would come. David, it would be from the loins of David. It would also be David's Lord. We know that because he is both the root and the branch at the same time, according to the book of Revelation. And if you read uh, Romans chapter one, it says of Jesus Christ that he was born of the flesh. According to the flesh, he was the son of David, but he was declared to be the son of God with power according to uh, his divinity. So Romans chapter one claims that. It shows the, the two beautiful uh, aspects of the mighty God in Christ. So were they expecting it? I think many of them were not. They didn't expect many things. Um, I mean, even the parable that Jesus gives about the owners of the vineyard, how he sent the servants, the master of the vineyard sent the servants 
to take of the fruit of the vineyard. They treated them terribly. They they beat them. They abused them. Some of them they killed. They cast out. Finally, the master of the vineyard said, I will send my son and they will honor him. They sent the son. They said, this is the heir. Let us seize him. Let us kill him. And we will take the vineyard for ourselves. What will them? And they did. They killed the son. When the master of the vineyard comes back, what will he do? And they said, well, he will miserably destroy them. He'll destroy those owners of that vineyard. And Jesus said, this is how it is in the kingdom of God. This is, this is what, exactly what you are doing. And the son of man is coming and you're doing whatever you want to with him. When they perceived that he spoke of them, they were angry. They tried to kill him because he was telling them, pointing out their hypocrisy and their sin. They were very angry about it. So not only maybe did they not see it or they were blind to it, but they grew enraged when Jesus claimed to be God. And at his crucifixion, they obviously uh, rejected his divine origin. This is the man who claimed that he was God because he makes himself God. He, he has blasphemed. He's worthy of death. So to answer the question, I don't know that many of them expected it to be God manifest in the flesh, but yet that's what it was. Many did accept it and believe it. And the Bible says to as many as believed to them, gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So there were many that did believe it. So I hope that, I hope that helps you tell All right. This question is from Zachary. Zachary says, from my understanding, and I'm actually unsure if I'm correct or not, but I have read that tongues is the only quote universal end quote sign of being filled with the Holy ghost. My question is, is it the only sign? If a person does not speak in tongues, can they ever have the Holy Ghost and not speak in tongues? I'm more of the oneness persuasion. I've spoken and pray in tongues, but this is something I've always wondered. Thank you. And I'll, I'll, co I'll combine this one with the next question. This is from Nicole. Nicole says, do all speak in tongues? We all have different gifts. All right, speaking in tongues is a, is a powerful topic. And the question is, no, speaking in tongues is not the only sign of receiving the Holy Ghost. It is the initial sign of receiving the Holy Ghost, and every believer will speak with tongues. Um, so when a person receives the Holy Ghost, the one universal constant in the book of Acts and in the epistles is speaking with other tongues. So every believer that is going to enter the kingdom of God to be born of the spirit, they will speak with tongues. Um, and then it says, can they ever have the Holy ghost and not speak in tongues? That is a, is a question that many people have. And I can tell you that they are, they can be moved by the Holy ghost. They can be impressed by the Holy ghost. They can be led by the Holy ghost, but they do not have the fullness of the Holy ghost until they give full expression to the spirit and you will speak with tongues when that happens. So let's talk about it. This is something that many people in the denominal world, it scares them. It intimidates them. But on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy ghost was poured out, every single believer spoke with other tongues. Now that's hotly debated in some circles. Some people want to say they spoke with known tongues, known 
languages that everybody there readily understood. It just means that they were speaking in langu- native languages that they understood so everyone could hear them. It was not supernaturally designed. The Bible strongly refutes that. Um, and I'll give you some scriptures that show that. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, when that Holy Ghost was poured out, it was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. Joel said, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter said, this is that outpouring. And so many people had been moved by the Holy Ghost. There's a place in the accounts of the gospel where Jesus breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And there's a lot of people that'll point to that and say, here, see, that's, that's them receiving the Holy Ghost. You don't need to speak with tongues. They didn't speak with tongues there. So that's, that's how it works. And the problem with that is number one, most people, they will resist the beautiful message of receiving the Holy Ghost because they're afraid. They have never received the Holy Ghost. They have never spoken with tongues in that manner. And because they haven't, they get afraid. They get intimidated. They say, well, I've never done that, but I do love God. I do feel his presence. And I, I, I just don't think that's necessary. The root of that is fear. Um, another thing is they are, they are going, trying to find vindication in the scriptures when the scriptures plainly says that that's exactly what happened. They began to speak with tongues and that experience caused them in Acts 2 to say, these men are not drunk like you think they are. As you suppose, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what Joel the prophet prophesied. And we know that the apostles did not receive the Holy Ghost when Jesus breathed on them because later on, Jesus stood up at the feast and he said, that if you would come unto him, you could drink. And he that believes on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Holy Ghost was not yet given until Jesus was glorified. It wasn't until the day of Pentecost. He did not give them the Holy Ghost when he breathed on them. The Bible plainly teaches that. And so when they asked the question, these men, are they drunk? Is, what, what does this mean? Peter said, this is what Joel prophesied about. And then he quotes David. And he said, when David spoke in the book of Psalms, he said that my heart would rejoice and my tongue would be glad. My heart would be rejoice my tongue would be glad. That's what happens when you get the Holy Ghost. Your heart, your mind, the seed of your emotion and intellect, it rejoices and your tongue is glad. That was, that was the response to what meaneth this in Acts 2. Well, that heart-tongue dynamic is found in Romans chapter 10. That how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? Uh, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings? Um. And then it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And um, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And so if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Well, people will take that and try to make a carnal confession from your natural mind and say that that's receiving the Holy Ghost. So they'll say a sinner's prayer or they will confess with their mouth somehow and follow some pre-programmed prayer. But in the book of Acts, that's not what happened. David said, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. And that's what is happening here in Acts 2. They spoke with tongues. That's your heart rejoicing. That's your tongue being glad. That's confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. 
And, and we know that because two chapters before in Romans 10, in Romans chapter 8, it says that God would send forth the spirit of adoption into your heart, the spirit of his son into your heart, and you would cry, Abba, Father. In the original Greek, it actually reads Abba Pater. And, and Paul purposely divides the tongues in that verse to illustrate cloven tongues. So he'll send the, the spirit of his son into your heart. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Uh, he says, that, uh, as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And you would cry, Abba, Father. You can read it. Romans chapter 8. Take the time to read it. You will cry, Abba, Father. And you are no more a servant, but you're a son. And you are an heir of God through Christ Jesus. And Galatians chapter 4 says the same thing. Romans 8 and Galatians 4, uh, first couple verses of Galatians 4, says that you will cry, Abba, Pater, cloven tongues, and no more are you a servant, you are now a son. That is describing the book of Acts experience. It is describing what happened on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 8, they spoke with tongues, and it caused Simon the sorcerer to beg them to give him that same power that on whoever he laid his hands, they might receive the Holy Ghost. Acts 10 at Cornelius's house, uh, while Peter spake the words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word. And this shocked the Jews because the Jews did not believe Gentiles could have the Holy Ghost. They did not believe Gentiles could be an heir. And as a matter of fact, Peter faced incredible pressure and scrutiny from his Jewish brethren. And Acts 11 after Cornelius' house, is a whole chapter dedicated to how he's going to explain it. He's going to get called on the red carpet. The Jews are going to um, scrutinize and interrogate him. They're going to, they're going to really, really look closely at him and, and criticize him. And so Peter rehearsed it from the beginning. When Peter says in Acts 10 that the angel showed up and told him to go to the house of uh Cornelius and to go with the Gentiles when they came to Simon the Tanner's house. The angel had told Cornelius that Peter would tell him words by which you and your house shall be saved, shall be saved, should be saved. And when you get to Acts 11, when Peter recounts it to the council, he doesn't say should be saved. He says that when the angel showed up, he said, the angel told him he will tell you words, um, by which you will be saved. I'm sorry, <laughs> next, Acts 10, he said, the angel said, he will tell you what you ought to do, ought to do. In Acts 11, the angel says, he will tell you words by which you and your house shall be saved. Powerful language, powerful verbiage from the angel. And the uh, Acts 11 gives a lot more detail to Acts 10. This is not just a, a nice thing that happens. This is not something that you should probably get to it if you want to, but this is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and you are not saved without it. So if you look at Cornelius, Cornelius was devout. He gave alms to the people. Um, he prayed to God all the time. He saw angels and visions. He talked to God. His prayers, the Bible says, were a memorial before God. And that qualifies for a lot of people's salvation in, in the religious world. They would say he's saved. But yet the angel says no. No, you still need to be born of the water and born of the spirit. And so go to Simon 
uh, the Tanner's house. He dwells by the seashore. There you will find a man who will tell you words. He will tell you what you ought to do. He goes there. Peter preaches Jesus to him and the Holy Ghost falls. And the Bible says they spoke with tongues. And it says the Jews were astonished that came with Peter because the Gentiles got it. And then Peter said, hey, they got it. This And the Bible says they spoke with tongues. They were astonished. It actually is a very powerful way it describes it. It says the Jews that were with Peter, this is Acts 10, 44, 45, 46, right in there. The Jews that came with Peter were astonished because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So Peter says, look, can you forbid them water, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Well, that phrase received the Holy Ghost as well as we, that's a reference back to Acts 2 when they spoke with tongues and they received the Holy Ghost. So the, not only did the Jews get it in Acts 2 and the Samaritans got it in Acts 8 and the Gentiles get it in Acts 10, but Peter is saying, God cleansed them. The angel said they are not saved yet. Now they have been born of the water, born of the spirit. We are baptizing them. They are getting the Holy Ghost. That is Bible salvation. So if a person doesn't speak in tongues, can they have the Holy Ghost? The answer is no. The fullness of the Holy Ghost is given when a person cries, Abba, Father, and they are no more a servant, but they are a son. So you need to receive the Holy Ghost and the initial evidence will be speaking in other tongues. Now, is that the only sign? No, it's not. Um, because then also we go on to live a godly life and we bear fruit. Another great evidence of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. There are a lot of people that speak in tongues that do not let the Spirit have full access in their life. They don't give way to the Spirit and let it have a dominion and supremacy in their life. They don't let the Lord guide them and direct them. And, and 1 Corinthians 13 says that you can have the tongues of, of men and of angels. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels and you don't have love or charity. Then you're sounding brass, you're tinkling cymbal. You can speak with tongues all day long, but if you hate your brother, if you look down your nose at people, if you're self-righteous, if you continue in sin and indulge in sin and let the flesh dominate you, you know, Paul said, what shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So if a person, and I, you probably know people that claim Jesus and maybe even speak with tongues and they continue to live this life of sin, they do not have the Holy Ghost. The fruit of the Spirit will bear witness. And Jesus did say, by their fruits, you shall know them. So just speaking in tongues does not mean that you're automatically just filled with the Holy Ghost. You will also bear fruit. Speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. Now, so many people, and I'll just throw this in here, so many people, they put such an emphasis on speaking in tongues that they get lost, they get scared, they, they don't believe. And they shouldn't be seeking for tongues. They need to seek for the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, when it fills you, you'll cry, Abba, Father. God said, open your mouth, I will fill it. Um, and, and, and Isaiah said that would happen. It said that uh, he wants to give us knowledge. He wants to give us doctrine. And he says it, Isaiah 28, 9, 10, 11, 12, whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, 
For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. Um, Line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. And then when you got that, when you got the scripture, when you got revelation, when you received all of that, something amazing would happen. He then goes on to say, with stammering lips and another tongue, God will speak to his people. And it will be the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and it will be the refreshing. And then he said, yet they would not hear. Powerful words, yet they would not hear. Five words tacked on to the end of that Isaiah prophecy that not only prophesies the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, but it prophesies the skepticism and the unbelief that would accompany it. But we are here to testify that when you receive the Holy Ghost, you will speak with other tongues and God's spirit will fill you. You will cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Pater. Cloven tongues will come upon you and you are no more a servant, but now you're a son. So many people think that only Acts describes this and it's a misinterpretation, but they miss Romans 8. They miss Galatians 4. They miss all the beautiful scriptures in the Bible where they they obviously spoke with tongues. And now Romans 10 no longer means a carnal confession, but it means exactly what happened through Acts. They confessed with their mouth and they believed in their heart. Their heart rejoiced, their tongue was glad. So that will happen when a person receives the Holy Ghost. So seek for the Holy Ghost. Don't just seek for tongues. The tongues will come when the Holy Ghost fills you. Now, a lot of people will look at John 3, 1 to 5, and they will try to say of that, because Jesus there says, except a man is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the apostolic church contends for, and it, it is true that that literally means that a person is to be baptized in Jesus' name and they are to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And what we do is we take that water spirit paradigm and we lay it over Acts 2, where they were baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost and Acts 8. It's kind of, you know, a, a, the water spirit paradigm is kind of like a cookie cutter. You know, when you want to make cookies and you want to make little stars or little acorns or Christmas trees or whatever it is you want to, you want to make a template, you take the dough and you roll the dough out and you take this little metal cutout and you just push it down and create templates of your cookies and each one is identical. Well, that is a template and that's what John 3, 5 is. It is a template and if you go to Acts 2, you'll see it stamped out, baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. In Acts 8, same thing. It, it stamps it out, baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Matter of fact, in Acts 8, they were all baptized and they had not yet received the Holy Ghost. So they are two separate, distinct experiences that combine as one experience. To be born of the water and to be born of the Spirit are separate events that comprise one event called the new birth. Acts 10, same thing, water, spirit. Acts 19, water, spirit. Um, And a host of other scriptures, you know, such were some of you, but you are washed but you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God, water and spirit coming out of Egypt. They went through the red sea into the cloud, water and spirit, um, the tabernacle, they go by the brazen labor into the Holy of Holies. The cloud comes in water and spirit, the water and spirit paradigm is there. So if you look at John three, five, that doesn't mean 
that doesn't mean that you're naturally born and spiritually born because that's what the denominal world will contend for. They'll say to be born of the water means that a woman's water breaks and they are naturally born. And when you are born of the spirit, that is when God regenerates you and you are somehow spiritually born. That is not the water spirit template. That is a denominational um, eisegesis that they superimpose on there. They ignore all those verses I just told you, and they just they tell you it's that way because I said it's that way. <laughs> and what they're really saying is, I have to say that because my church doesn't do that, and this scares me, and I've never done that. So, and I know I'm saved. Well, to all of our friends out there that are listening that that have not been baptized in Jesus name and you've never received the Holy Ghost and spoken with other tongues as the spirit gives the utterance this is your chance to obey what the scripture said and I pray that you don't fall into the yet they would not hear camp I pray that you fall into the this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest camp so what does it actually mean well the question was can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born that's what Nicodemus asked Jesus and Jesus said, you must be born again. What does born again mean? Nicodemus says, what, is it, what does this mean? Can I enter the second time into my mother's womb? Well, for Jesus to say, well, to be born again, Nicodemus, you need to be born naturally and to be born spiritually. That doesn't logically follow. That would be redundant. We already know we're born. The question isn't how does physical birth and spiritual birth work? The question is, what does born again mean? And to be born again, you don't need to be physically born and then spiritually born. That would be redundant. It doesn't logically follow. Here's what it actually means. When a person is physically born, they will be born of water and spirit. So when you were born, your mother's water broke. If you were born naturally, I'm, you know, disqualifying cesarean sections. And if you're a test tube baby, <laughs> if there's anybody out there like that, then obviously this doesn't apply, but the natural form of birth that Jesus, uh, that, that the Lord gave to mankind, a woman's water will break and a baby will be born. And when that baby's born, that baby will cry out. Every baby will cry out. It will cry out. This is true of all babies in all continents. And it is a beautiful witness that every baby is born of the water and spirit in a natural sense. The doctor's waiting on the baby to cry. The daddy's waiting on the baby to cry. If he's man enough to be in the delivery room, that is. Um, the mother is earnestly waiting on that baby to cry. And when the baby cries, they know the spirit has entered in. I can remember in both of my child, both my son's births, I was there in the delivery room. And, and when the baby, uh, emerged from the womb, they were purple. They were blue. They were the, 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 the blood in their body had not been oxygenated yet. They were still reliant on mom's lungs and on mom's uh, umbilical cord. When the baby was born, in both instances, when that baby opened its mouth, the whole body turned pink, just like that. Just that, that oxygen flooded into that baby, and you saw the change right in front of your eyes, and that cry filled that room. I, I, got, I got tears in my eyes. The miracle of birth was right there in front of me, and that baby physically was born of the water and born of the spirit. The water broke. And it came through the birth canal and the spirit entered into him. That same spirit that God 
breathed into Adam and he became the breath of life. That is the life that was the light of men that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's the spark of life given that John describes. But then later on, he said that when in John, the book of John, John chapter one, which prefaced John three, that they would be born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there is another born of water, born of spirit experience. And that is when you are baptized in Jesus' name and you are filled with the Holy Ghost. That is when you go through the water into the cloud. And the best template we have of this is when they come out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, the water buried their sins. It, um, it, it washed away their past. They were baptized into the cloud. And the Bible says they were baptized unto Moses. Huh. Well, they weren't baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost back then. They were baptized to Moses, who was an Old Testament redeemer. Well, in the New Testament, we go through the water to get out of Egypt. And the water buries our past. And we go into the cloud, into our New Testament redeemer, which is Jesus. And that is a birth. And that's why Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Both of them will have that water spirit template. So by the time you have that template throughout the book of Acts, throughout Romans, throughout Galatians, it is all over the Bible. And for someone to say that it means physical birth and spiritual birth, um, so you don't need to be baptized, you don't need the Holy Ghost, none of that, they are ignoring the water spirit paradigm. So that's my little rant for the day on that. But Zachary, I hope that helps you. Um, speaking in tongues is not the only sign, but it is the initial sign, and everyone that does it will speak with tongues. Um, and we see this too. We also see this very powerfully in Acts 19. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he finds certain disciples and they only knew the baptism of John. Look at the first two questions that Paul asks them. He says to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? So there's a lot of people that believed, but had never received the Holy Ghost. I'll point something else out to you. That's what Jesus said would happen. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So if you believe on the Lord, out of your belly, get that picture, out of your belly will flow a river. It's going to come flowing out of you. This spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So the first thing Paul asks is, have you received the Holy Ghost? since you believed. And they said, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Ghost. Well, that clued Paul in to say, well, if you haven't been born of the spirit, maybe you haven't been born of the water. So then the second question was on to what then were you baptized? Now, if that doesn't matter, why is Paul asking that? If that's trivial, if that's just semantics, if a person just needs to believe these people had already believed, why did they need to do anything else? Because the water spirit paradigm has to be there. The same thing that saved him in Acts 2, the same thing that the angel said would save Cornelius, needed to save these believers in Acts 19. Read it, Acts 19, 1 to 6. The Bible says that they said we were baptized to John's baptism. Well, John preached Jesus, Paul said, so we got to redo your baptism. And if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, you need to get your baptism redone. You need the name of Jesus. And that's a name that's above every name, a name that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Um, no name like the name of Jesus. And 
He took them, he baptized them in Jesus' name, and the Bible says that they spake with other tongues. They spake with other tongues. So once again, the water spirit paradigm, they cried, Abba, Father, Abba, Pater. The cloven tongues came upon them just like it did in Acts 2, 8, 10, and now in 19. And that will happen in your life. So a beautiful, beautiful example. And one more thing I might add is if you read in Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer, the Bible says of him that they baptized him and that he believed. It says Simon believed. He believed. But later on, he says, I don't have the Holy Ghost. Give me, let me give you money and you give me this power. This was like a, an Egyptian magician kind of thing. This was like, um, you know, uh, pull the rabbit out of a hat kind of a deal. Peter rebukes him and says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, how could your heart not be right if you've been baptized and you believed? But yet it's not. Peter said, you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. How can you do that if you've believed on Jesus? The Bible says he believed. But Simon cried out, pray that this bad thing doesn't happen. Pray that I can get this right. So we need that water and spirit. We need that initial infilling of the Holy Ghost. And yes, every person will have it. Now there's a lot of stuff on here. I need to do, I need to do a Biblo session on the menorah, on the candlesticks and what that represents. But there's a beautiful, beautiful revelation tied to that. So by God's grace, I'll be able to give that to you. So Zachary, I hope that helps you. Now, Nicole says, do all speak in tongues. We all have different gifts. And a lot of people commonly confuse this. They'll go to the book of first Corinthians um, 12, 13, and 14 that talks about the gifts of the spirit. And it talks about speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it says, not everybody speaks in tongues, not everybody prophesies. And they will confuse the gift of tongues with the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We're all speaking tongues. Um, not everybody has the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is a separate experience from receiving the Holy Ghost where everybody will speak with tongues. And we know this because if you read it in 1 Corinthians, it, it tells you that the gift of tongues needs to be by two or three at the most, and that has to be in order by course, and everyone interpret. All things need to be done decently and in order because the purpose is the edification of the church. There is a message that's going to go forward. One will interpret that message, and it needs to be done decently and in order. And if you're, everybody's just babbling, there'll be someone that comes in that thinks you're crazy that you will be a barbarian to them, Paul said. So not everybody has that gift or the gift of interpretation or the gift of prophecy um, or the gift of uh, knowledge and the word of wisdom, uh, discerning of spirits. Not everybody has each gift, but each person works in giftings that God gives to them. That is a message to the church. Now, speaking in tongues when you first receive the Holy Ghost is a different thing. We know this because on the day of Pentecost, they all spoke with tongues, cloven tongues, like as a fire uh, fell upon each of them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave the utterance. That's not two or three. That is everybody at once. That is a worship experience unto God where they cried, Abba, father, and the spirit bear bore witness with them. That's what Romans eight says. It says the spirit will bear witness with your spirit. Well, that bearing witness is when you speak with tongues. It's the same thing that happens when the baby cries in the doctor's room. When the baby cries, it bears witness to everybody in that room that baby's alive. 
Well, when you're born of the spirit, it will bear witness to everybody around you that you are alive. You are, you have entered a new world and you are, you are born of the spirit. And that did not happen in Simon's life. Um, and it did not happen until they laid their hands on them in Acts eight. So there is a very real distinct experience that goes beyond belief. Have you received the Holy ghost since you believed? Um, so this and in Acts 12, or rather, I'm sorry, in Acts 19 with the 12 that were there, they all spoke with tongues. They didn't do it by two or three. They did it. They all did it. In Acts 8, they all received the Holy Ghost. In Acts 10, the entire house of Cornelius spoke with tongues, and all of them did it. So this is not the gift of tongues. This is a corporate worship event where everyone cries out to God. They cry, Abba, Peter, and his spirit bears witness with them. So it is true that in the church, after receiving the Holy Ghost, there is a gift of tongues. That is not the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost when a person is first born. Okay, Adam asks this, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this one, guys, because uh, I know I've gone a little while here. Adam asks, can you elaborate on the context of John 3, 5, 3, 7, and how Nicodemus can, could have possibly understood this to mean baptism? He was a teacher of the law, the Tanakh. What should he have understood water and spirit to mean? If his only source was the Old Testament, how could he ever understand this concept that Jesus full well expected him to understand what symbolized water in the old testament what symbolized spirit in the old testament okay <clears throat> great question adam and I, I did deal with that here largely but let me add just a little bit the jews were very uh, very aware of baptism they had pools all around the temple They're, they've now begun to uncover them there are archaeological finds where there are dozens and dozens of pools where you could go in for ceremonial washing they were very very uh, aware of baptisms in that day. Archaeological evidence points to it. The Jews of that day understood the washing. Uh, John the Baptist baptized everybody. That's why he's called the Baptist, the baptizer. So they all knew this was happening. John was held as a prophet. He was gaining converts rapidly. The concept of people being baptized was very, very familiar. It was the idea of being born again that Nicodemus did not understand, and he was having trouble reconciling it. Um, later on in first Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is old Testament, the old Testament symbolizing of the new birth. So there is no more powerful metaphor of going through the water than the red sea. And the Bible calls that baptism, baptism to Moses. Well, going through the water today is baptism to Jesus, who's the New Testament Redeemer. So it is there. It was in the scripture. And, and Jesus was amazed that Nicodemus hadn't connected the dots. He's, you know, how, how can you be a master in Israel and don't know these things? Um, but yet he didn't. He didn't know it. And so Jesus was there. The living word was there to help him. But again, they thought the Romans were going to be overthrown. They thought that um, Elijah was physically going to come. There were many things Jesus said. You know, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But they thought he was talking about the physical temple. There was a lot of things that they thought were going to happen that they did not understand. It was when Jesus came that we see he revealed, he showed, he brought further light and revelation. All right, that 
That's a lot of questions. They are great questions. I have more. So we'll take another episode here by God's grace in the near future. We will get to more of them. Continue to send your questions in. We love your questions. We love the feedback that you're giving to us. And keep reading the scriptures. Fall in love with them. That's the mission of Biblos is to uh, get people to see and to appreciate the beauty of the word of God, the depth and the profundity of the word of God. The Bible says they that go down to the sea in ships, uh, they do business in deep waters, in great waters. They will see the wonders of the deep. They will see the glory of God. And I believe that we can see God's glory and his power as we search for ever deeper meaning in his word. So I hope that's a blessing to you. And we'll do another session coming up. Keep sending your questions. And, and we'll have a great time with it. Until then, God bless you and God keep you and God cause his face to shine upon you. Amen.